That's a go for Spielberg. Welcome to the High Impact Man podcast. High impact men from across the nation sharing their stories of inspiration, encouragement, and hope to help others become the virtuous leaders they are called to be and that our nation desperately needs. Hey, welcome to another episode of the High Impact Man podcast. I do not know what that whistling sound is in the background. <laughs> are you watering your lawn, Dred? Or is it birds? <laughs> uh, it might be. I'm outside. I right, went away. It might be. It might be birds. Oh, okay. but I, I don't do any yard work whatsoever. <laughs> okay. So it 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 could not be. It could not be that. All right. <laughs> you got people. It might right? be somebody. I mean, it, it wouldn't be me. Plus, I'll tell you what. You guys are are where central Pennsylvania, right? Yep. So I'm in the Piedmont of North Carolina. You don't need to water anything here, man. I mean, it's like a rainforest. Yeah, we, I'm telling you. We heard it's been raining down there a ton. Really? Uh, it always rains down here a ton. I oh, mean, you might have missed that. Yeah. Uh, we. Were... we uh, I mean, if you don't know anything about Charlotte, uh, there's a couple things that Charlotte has going for it. One is we've got the best airport, airport in the world. Uh, the second is... We got more water than you'd ever possibly need. I mean, we'll never have a problem with that. Uh, third is in Charlotte, we have, well, probably too many trees. And we also have more churches per capita than any other city in America. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Well, if you get that much I rain. Mean, if you want to know about, if you want to know about Charlotte, I can't tell you about Harrisburg or Wilkes, Wilkes Barre or Pottstown or anything. Right. But I, I, I'll get, I will load well you up on Charlotte knowledge, man. All right, if you all want right. it? Well, we'll see where we go. I don't know. Okay, we'll did go with the New wind. Jerusalem. Did he get it right? Yeah, Wilkes Barre, Wilkes Barre, something like something like that, something like that. Wilkes Barre. Yeah, that's where I grew up, man. Cold country. A, oh, did you really? Yeah, I'm actually a recovering Yankee, so I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, which is <laughs> a recovering Yankee. If you go, if you go 84 and you go from where you guys are, uh, eastward right. and cross through New York and go into Connecticut, that's where I'm from. Yeah. I, I worked uh, in uh, so, Bridgeport for a while. Oh yeah. So you were in the capital of Yankee hell, you know, uh, <laughs> a lot about Yankee, Yankeeisms. Yes. My paternal side of my family, uh, have you ever heard the expression, I know you guys are central or central Pennsylvanians, but <clears throat> the area of Philadelphia is called the Main Line. Have you ever heard that? Yep. Yeah. So my my paternal side of my family is from Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, which is not quite in the Main Line. It's a little bit outside of the Main Line. Mm-hmm. But I I know I have some ancestral connection with the Keystone State, and I I like some of what you have tried to do. I am not a Penn State fan, mainly because I went to Boston College and was was groomed to hate uh, <laughs> Joe Paterno. Yeah, and then what Joe Paterno did with the rest of his life made it easy. Yeah, but other than that, I generally admire the Keystone State. So I'm looking at you. Yeah, I, we haven't even introduced you yet, but well, it's okay. So the, the you know you went to Boston College and you graduated in eighty eighty five. So. I did. Um, I'm thinking that was 
Right when Doug Flutie was starting at Boston College. Who's Doug Flutie? Never heard of the guy. Oh no, he was. He was right. (laughs) He was. He was ending. So ending. Yeah. Flutie. Yeah, Doug Flutie came to prominence in Boston because in 1983, I think, he went into Penn State and beat the Lions. Put up like 500 yards passing. We could never beat Penn State, and he did that. We. This is really funny if you look at it now, like. From Boston College's perspective, Penn State was the big rival. I yes, don't really yes. know why. Well, we played we played every year for some reason. It was back yeah, in yes. our days of indi- I, we being were, independent. Actually, we were independents. Yeah, 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 we were independents. Yeah. But I was raised to hate Penn State. Right. Uh, and uh, so, because Flutie could do it, we could beat Penn State with Flutie. That changed everything. Because before that, we were like... A doormat. I just remember. Y'all. I just remember Doug Flutie throwing about five, six hundred yards passing against Penn State, and Penn State beating him all the time. Oh yeah, that's what I remember. I don't remember the beating <laughs> part, but yeah. So these were good years, actually, for uh, Penn State football, because uh, I think y'all won a national championship. If I recall, I'm going to say eighty-five or eighty-six. Eighty-six. Yeah, two eighty-six. Beat, beat Miami. Right. And the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, and Miami was horribly corrupt. And yeah. Penn State, before the whole Paterno truth came out, uh, was generally well-respected. And you had some good guys like Todd Rutledge. Uh, Blackledge. Blackledge. And Blackledge. Shane uh, Conley? Yeah, Conley? Shane Conlin, yeah. He was a linebacker, yeah. Linebacker, really well-loved. Beat the heck out of Miami. Of course, BC hated Miami too. Right. And if you would ask me at that time, who do you hate more? It'd be Miami. Yeah. And of course, this predates all the paternal rot locker room, rape yeah. and boy stuff. So, yeah. I mean, we didn't know. Right, right, right. Well, that happened. We knew, yeah. That nobody knew. That was yeah. Sandusky. Yeah. Poor Jopa. Yeah. Why am I well, throwing a blank? A lot of people knew. A lot of people knew on Mount Nittany, but they covered it up. Right, right. That's but we the, didn't yeah. know in Boston. Right. We didn't know. <laughs> No. Okay. We we should probably introduce ourselves. What was that point shaving thing that happened yes. up in the Northeast? Oh, the day, the day was there a point shaving yes. that happened? That was in basketball. There was no raping. There was no raping. I want to point that out. Are we gonna there have an intro? We never got in an intro. We yeah. hit the ground running on this. Yeah, one, we're running. We? This is. A, I don't know. This is how your forty-three feet podcasts go too. I don't know. At some point in the middle, you introduce. Right. So here we go. That's exactly how it goes. Yeah. So go ahead. All Sorry. right. So welcome to the High Impact Man podcast. We are going to speak to a High Impact Man that we are sort of talking to now. I'm Nevin Gorky. I'm known as D-Fib in the gloom. They're the F3 guys that we hang out with. And uh, my co-host is Dial-Up. His real name is Troy Klinger. And uh, Dial-Up, we're off and running. We're off and running. I'm trying to remember. Blackledge was 82 for the national championship, Cor- right? Uh, yes. Who? Yeah, John Schaefer. John Schaefer was 86. That's right. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, you guys had some heroes. John Capaletti. Oh, yeah. Uh, you just had... You can, you can go back. And Penn State... Penn State's had some solid dudes. Oh yeah, linebacker, yeah. you baby. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We just we just need some solid coaching now. <laughs> I think the guy you got right now—he's a good recruiter. Is, is, I think he's fine. Yeah, we'll see. So yeah, every you know, there's a, everyone's a critic. Everyone's a critic. I'm uh, not a critic. Of, I mean. Well, you, you always have your critics, I should say. And James Franklin sure. is. Uh, he, I think he's trying uh, to do things the right way, though. So. Yeah. All right, it's moving tough. on. You know, Mount Nittany is tough. <laughs> <laughs> I should have worn my Penn State hat. You guys can't see me on the podcast. You can't recruit the players with. Should... Can't recruit the players with fancy uniforms at Penn State. Oh, you can now. Nope. Man, that's, that's 
All right. Uh, so uh, our guest today is one Dave Redding, known as Dread in uh, the F3 Nation. And if you're part of F3, you know Dread. Uh, we're really honored to have him on today. Uh, he's the guy who started this whole darn thing. He and o OBT and uh, yep. author of three books that I know of, Free to Lead, Q-Source, and Minivan Centurion. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, three books. I think Minivan Centurion is just digital now, right? Minivan Centurion has not yet been reduced to, uh, it's not a book. Okay. So, uh, I mean, so my partner in crime on this is Dark Helmet, and I'll put this on him. He He's the guy who actually does really the hard work of getting getting the thing published, which is uh, a giant pain in the butt. So it it exists, and uh, you can get it online and all that. It has so chapters. I don't know why anybody would ever buy it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, an author uh, currently working as a lawyer and uh, had spent some years in uh, the Special Forces in the Army, Green Beret, right? Yep, sure enough. What, what uh, rank were you when you left? I uh, left the Army as a captain. Captain, okay. All right, so we're going to get into his story. Uh, the stories that we have these guys come on to tell are in order to motivate, inspire, and encourage guys to be more virtuous leaders. Uh, and this is uh, the mission of what we call F3. It is to invigorate male community leadership. So with that said, uh, Dred, I know you've told the story probably a zillion times. I can't tell you who EH'd you because you started the thing, so that question's out the window. <laughs> um, but I, I think I could guess, but why don't you tell us how you got Dred? So actually, that's not quite accurate because F3 is the is uh, a downstream product of a predecessor workout in Charlotte called the Campos, uh, which exists started probably in 07 or 08 and uh, in Freedom Park in Charlotte. And uh, that was a guys on Saturday. It was just a Saturday workout. Still exists as we sit here today. Uh, outdoor workout. All very many of the same tenets, and I was uh, EH'd into that workout in the summer of '09 by a guy named Zoot. Uh, and I so I went to that workout for the first time in October or so of '09 because the story is that I was at the community swimming pool and Zoot. Look great. He's walking around the pool. I was like, man, what have you been doing? I've been doing this workout. And I said, oh, well, I want to do it. And he looked at me and said, well, you need to get in shape first because I weighed about 220 pounds, uh, which is 30 or 40 pounds overweight over what I should. And uh, I got mad about it, but he was completely right. Later, he said, the reason I told you that because I knew you were in the Army and we'd had some guys come out who were out of shape and they tried to prove themselves and got hurt. I didn't mean that that you were fat, but the truth of the matter was I was fat. It took me two and a half months to lose 30 or 40 pounds to get, to go out to the campus. And I did. And as soon as I got out there, I realized, well, this is kind of where I, I need to be for my D2X. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, at the time the campus had about 15 guys when I got there and over the next year or so it doubled in size and uh, the leader of the campus couldn't deal with the, and I don't mean this in a bad way, he justifiably could not figure out what to do with all these guys, right? Because the fellowship was getting all screwed up. So OBT and I volunteered to start a, another workout at another location at the same time. 
at AG Middle School in, in uh, Charlotte. And we did on 1-1-11. Uh, so, uh, you know, we built this. The campus grew in a year. And then 1-1-11, we started this new workout. And uh, OBT and I sent out about 80 emails, 80, 80 or 85 guys announcing this thing, thinking we'd get five guys. And if we got five guys, if it took us a year, we might get up to 15 again and be like, you know, we're doing something. So, you know, New Year's Day, Charlotte, 2011, we got 30 guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, we said, well, it's probably New Year's resolution kind of crap, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I know in Harrisburg, the first day of the year is cold, is all get out. Yeah. You know, in Charlotte, yeah, it's 45 degrees. It's not bad. And uh, I'm like, well, next week we're going to get five guys. Next week we got 35 guys. Uh-huh. And we and we never had less. So, you know, OBT and I idiotically and accidentally tapped into this tremendous need of men to be at a workout. So, yeah, I, you know, we get credit as founders, but kind of in the way, you know, if you're on the Mayflower, they're like, oh, he was on the Mayflower. Well, I didn't do anything. I just got on the boat. <laughs> you know, because it seemed like a good idea, right. and then no one else is around. So, oh, well, you're on the Mayflower. So that's kind of how it happened. Uh, to be yeah. Actually, you got kicked off the Mayflower, right? That's how it happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, ultimately, the funny part of that is the Campos guys ultimately kind of got mad at us uh-huh. because accidentally we, you know, we had this successful thing, and uh, they uh, ultimately said, "Well, you can't come back." <laughs> so then and we didn't have a name for and, and Zoot, the guy who headlocked me in the campos one day comes back and says, right before he went back to the campos comes and says, you know what? There's just like three things that we're doing. It's like three F's. I'm like, well, what are they? He's like, well, we're getting fit. And then there's all this fellowship and the, you know, there's just faith and, and campos didn't really do the faith thing. Well, that was definitely something OBT and I did. Uh, He's like, it's three F's. It's like F3. And that's how, you know, Zoot gets credit for that. And the next week he said, I'm never coming back. And he went back to campus. So there. Do you still have contact he's my neighbor. with Zoot? I, you guys talk about, we were talking about hitting golf balls. I could hit his house from, <laughs> from here, driver seven iron. I could get to his house right. from where I'm sitting. Zoot. Yeah. So, so you still have contact with him. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how'd you get the name Dread from Judge Dread? Yeah, so we went out there like, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. What's your name, Dave Redding? They're like, Judge Dredd. I'm like, fine. I like that movie. This is the old Sylvester Sloan movie. Right, yep. You guys are pretty young. You probably haven't seen that when there's a remake. <laughs> but there was this old Sylvester Stallone movie called Judge Dredd. And uh, uh, they called me that. Uh, and then after a couple of weeks, they dropped the judge because I don't have a judicial temperament. And they're like, <laughs> you're, a, you're a side picker. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm a lawyer, but I'd be the world's worst judge. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a side picker. So anyway, uh-huh. at that moment I became dread, which at the time didn't seem cool at all. Uh, over time, I kind of like it. Yeah. I so, think it's cool. It certainly could have been worse. Yeah. yeah. I, could, uh, yes. I could see him having his own TV show as a judge though. Like, uh, Oh, like, yeah. Judge Judy kind of thing. Like, neither of <laughs> you guys are lawyers, right? You're like Correct. marketers or farmers or something. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's it. 
Well, you're you're a you're a physician's a physician assistant, right. not a physician's assistant, a physician assistant, right? Yeah. Yep. And I'm, and I'm an IT I guy. I'm an IT said. guy. Dial dial up some IT, IT guy. guy yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So right? you guys you guys don't know what it's like to be a lawyer, and so you don't know that very few lawyers would be good judges. Well, I am married, and I have to state my case multiple times a day. So. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe you could you could be a lawyer. Like, so as a lawyer, you advocate zealously for a particular position. Yes. But yeah. as a judge, you go, well, on the one hand, but on the other, you know, I mean, right, it's a different yeah. thing. No, no, you want to take a side. So um, yeah. I really appreciate you saying I'm too young because I'm I'm going to be 56 in September. So you could see me. So well, I'm taking that as a compliment. Younger than that. Yeah, brother, I'm taking that. Okay, good. It is just I a little window on the screen, probably. Don't yeah. don't burst my bubble dial. No, you, I, you look good. I just thought you were younger. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right, so I want to I want to ask you a little bit. You know, guys, most guys listening to this are going to know at least some stories about you know, how after we started and all that stuff. I want to get to know Dave Redding a little bit. So, what was it like growing up? I know you grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. Which I don't want to get you off yep. on a tangent, but as soon as you tell me Danbury, Connecticut, I think of the Danbury Baptist and the letter Thomas Jefferson and all that. But what was it like growing up there? So uh, I say Danbury. I'm really from a, a town right outside of Danbury called New Fairfield which had 10,000 people in it when I was a kid. I graduated high school in 1981. It's got 10,000 people in it now. Typical of the rest of Connecticut. It's just kind of faded away. Yeah. Uh, it's a predominantly Catholic town. Uh, I would, I, I call it Fogaria for a couple of reasons. One is if you've ever driven down 95 through New Haven, Connecticut, there's a big sign on the side of the road, it says fog area mm -hmm. because fog rolls in <laughs> off the Long Island Sound. Area. Now there's, there, yeah. So there's a DJ. This is during 40, well, 40 freaking years ago who used to had this whole bit about calling that part of Connecticut fog area. <laughs> of course. And he did it in a Mexican accent, which you could never get away with now. And he had a whole stick and be like, oh, yeah, we're looking at Fagaria. In the Fagaria today. Now, the beauty of this is, if you're from this part of the country, is you would know that it's in a moral fog. Oh. And that's why I think of it that way. Yeah. It's a place where... There are men, and there is a sense, kind of a generalized sense of right and wrong, but they play hell telling you where it comes from <laughs> or why they even bother with it. Yeah. So I grew up in, in kind of a morally ambiguous uh, place. Well, even in the 70s and uh, early, early 80s, it was like that? Oh, my God. It was the height of it. Wow. Huh. Now, so there's there's an old movie from the early 90s called Ice Storm. And if you ever watch this movie, it perfectly, and it's about Greenwich, which is kind of the rich part of where I'm from, not where I'm from, but um, it depicts uh, a key party. Do you guys know what a key party is? Key party? No. Uh -uh. Yeah. You guys are good, like, Pennsylvania Dutchers. You have no idea. <laughs> 
So a key party in in Fogaria uh-huh. is when you key cars. Call, no, I wish. All right. Husbands and wives would go to a party, and the husband would put his keys oh, no. in a bowl. Oh, brother! And when I, they okay. left, the the wives would draw a set of keys out, and that's who they would go home. I with. did hear about this. Yeah. yeah. So that was depicted in the ice storm. Um, and I don't know if. I don't know if my parents ever went to a key party, but I can tell you that the, the generally prevailing, I guess, moral culture was that debased. So do you, do you know DFib what a libertine is? I've heard of it. It's not a liberal. That's right. a political thing. Right. A libertine is someone who doesn't have any guardrails to their moral life. Right. Like anything goes. Yes, of course. Right. That's foggeria. Okay. That sounds like... And the, I'm not saying... Go ahead. I, I, that sounds like a place I would have liked to have grown up when I was a teenager. I kind of lived in my own foggeria. Sure. <laughs> yeah, well, if sounds you're like, 16, it's awesome. Yeah. If you're 36, you start questioning it. Sure, right? right yeah. Sounds like DNA testing might be required for all kids <laughs> just to confirm everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's like going to Villanova or something. It's just... It's morally... That's a big East joke. You guys wouldn't quite get it. No, no, so, I get it. It's <laughs> it's what Fogaria is is morally bankrupt. Yeah. Okay, so that's so, how, that's the place you grew up. From there, I went to a Jesuit college, Boston yep. College. Yep. And I, and I, and the Jesuits are, are you guys Catholic? I so I grew up Catholic. I grew up in the coal region, yeah. so I'm not Pennsylvania Dutch. I'm uh, English, Irish, Polish mixture. But anyway, gotcha. I. Um, uh, what was the question? <laughs> Are you Catholic? Jesuit, so I grew up. I grew I up Catholic. To... I grew up Catholic, but I'm a Baptist now. Since uh, yeah, since uh, okay. I, I, grew, so I grew up Methodist, you know, now I, a Baptist. I, I mean, I gotta explain this stuff to Southern Protestants. Right, they have no freaking idea. No. So the Jesuits. Are were like God's green berets back in the 16th, 17th century, whatever they started. Yeah. But by the by the by. Right now, they're a completely broken. It's like the Boy Scouts. They ain't what they were. Right. So Boston College, uh, I think Villanova, and and uh, I might be wrong about Villanova, um, Marquette. There's a whole bunch of Jesuits, Jesuit colleges in America, that were founded on these very strict principles of of missionary. Christianity, which are now basically just woke, I don't know, kind of facsimiles of what they were. So I went to Boston College. I was not raised in any particular faith. I was just a typical Fogaria kid, uh, nominally Protestant. So I went to Boston College and was introduced into a facsimile of Christianity through the Jesuits. Like, they said things they didn't believe it but they said them. Mm-hmm. So I actually understood a lot about what Christianity was. Although at age 21, I didn't think anybody believed it. <laughs> I thought it was like a costume you put on. Cause you know, like I'm a pirate. See, I got a <laughs> eye patch, but yeah. underneath that there was an eye <laughs> right. and that's not a real sword. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I, 
I was in ROTC at Boston College, so I was sent to Fort Benning uh, in 1985. I've never gone back uh, to Yankee land. Uh, and I, it was like going, it was culture shock when I got down there. Uh, the army culture and uh, the culture of Christianity was was a shock to me, to my system and probably changed me forever. Uh, and that, that's kind of the path what's, what started me on that. So uh, I spent nine years in the Army, ended up at Fort Bragg, which is in North Carolina, eastern portion of North Carolina, Fayetteville, North Carolina, and uh, got out of the Army in 1994, wanted to go to law school, applied to various law schools, got into Wake Forest, which is Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's basically the central – it's basically the Harrisburg of North Carolina. Central right. Park has no distinctive character one way or the other. Like Harrisburg, uh, and uh, <laughs> met my future wife there, uh, who's from Asheville, in the mountains of North Carolina, and uh, graduated from law school and decided to stay, and bounced around a little, and then ended up in Charlotte. And I've been here in Charlotte, North Carolina, for the last uh, twenty-two or years or so. But it's here in Charlotte where I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. Now, let me uh, let me ask you a question. Um, when you, uh, you became a Christian, what prompted that, and when did you read the Bible? So I actually had read a lot about the Bible right? at Boston College, because that's what they have you do. Read a lot of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Never actually read the Bible. Read a lot of C.S. Lewis. So uh, that's kind of an inside Jesuit joke. So <laughs> uh, in, in about 2004 or so, my, I had one child, had a wife, and my middle child, I had a second child, and uh, became panicked. I suddenly became panicked because I realized what a horrible freaking man I was. And uh, I didn't know what to do. So I asked my wife to get me a book to help me because I was afraid. So I was okay with having a wife. And one child, says a second child, suddenly scared me. So she brought me home this book called A Man in the Mirror. Yeah, I read it. Patrick Morley. Patrick Morley. Great book. Man in the Mirror basically says, this is who you are. This is what's going to become of you mm-hmm. if you don't change. And then part three is, this is who you could be. And part three has a lot of C.S. Lewis in it, which I recognize you know, from having been in college. So I read that book and I said to my wife, I don't know why she's my book agent, but would you go get me this book, um, Mere Christianity, which she did. Oh, yeah. Because I keep citing it. Morley keeps citing it. Right. Morley is this real estate guy from like Gainesville, Florida, of all places. It's like really weird. Uh, so I uh, I read Mere Christianity. And Mere, Mere Christianity basically lays it out lays the case for Christ out in a way that if you're a lawyer is very hard to resist. Mm-hmm. I don't know about being a physician assistant, but, or an IT guy, but as a lawyer, it's hard to resist. By the end of it, you're like, well, and he says, if you believe all this, you might want to get on your hands and knees and try praying. So holding it like an instruction manual, like I'm putting together a bicycle on Christmas Eve. I like, I did what it said. I'd never really prayed before other than jumping out of an airplane. I'd say, God, 
<laughs> if my shoot opens, right. I'll be a better guy, you know. <laughs> right. Other than that, I'd never really pray. Yeah. And it said you have to ask Jesus in your heart. So I, I got on my hands and knees and asked, you know, put the book down. Went outside, had this little four-mile sad clown route I'd been doing. I went, nothing changed. Second day, eh, I did it again. Third day, I'm like, I'll give it a third chance. Hands and knees on my bathroom floor. God, Jesus, God, whomever, I believe in you. I want to change, I, I, whatever. Please go out. Got about a mile into it. And I, you know, uh, in this place where it's still, you know, very close to where I live right now. I had that moment, man, that epiphany. Yeah. It, it actually worked. Uh, I realized that Jesus Christ was my savior, that everything he'd ever said was true. And, uh, I, so in one step of my little sad clown run, I was a non-believer. In the second step, I was a, a believer. In the third step, I was scared as hell because I realized that everything that he always said, <laughs> some of which I understood, <laughs> was true. And then I was in dire trouble. Yeah. Because I had no hope of ever living up to any of it. <laughs> but my heart had been changed. I spent the next three years trying to hide that from people <laughs> and crying. I had like multiple crying jags. I, this is really weird. Mm -hmm. I said this to a guy who happened to be a black preacher that I heard give a great uh, sermon. I walked up to him afterwards. I said, because he talked about he's a drug dealer and he'd come to Christ. I said, <clears throat> after you believed, did you ever cry? And he says, that's all I ever did was cry. <laughs> did you cry? I said, yeah, man, I cried for three years. I'm like, what is that? And he said, that's the dirty water. Oh. Huh. And uh, that's the dirty water that he uh, squeegeed out of your nasty freaking heart. Mm. And uh, so I spent three years doing that. On uh, Halloween of 2007, why then? I don't know. I finally reached the bottom. Uh, and I dropped down on my knees. <laughs> And I said, those are my dogs if you hear the background. And I I completely surrendered. See, I already believed, but right. I hadn't surrendered. Yeah, yeah. And uh and I and I surrendered uh everything. And I guess I truly, truly did it at that moment because at that moment I was forty three years old. That's why we call it forty three, by the way. Uh, oh, I was forty three years old. Ah, yeah, if yeah. Solved. yeah. Uh, I truly surrendered all of it, and uh, my life changed on a dime. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, on, yeah. Well, that's amazing because, you know, you came to faith through a lot of things, but basically Patrick Morley and C.S. Lewis helped guide you there and then, you know, meeting this preacher. But I didn't have – I had a similar experience, not quite. I got married, and I got challenged by my wife – you know, she said, if we're going to be married, we should be part of a church. And I'm like, well, that's a good idea. I didn't, I was a non-practicing Catholic. And, uh, and so we, we experimented in a couple different churches. I didn't know where to go. I thought I was going to get struck down by lightning if I stepped foot in a Protestant church. But we went into one because it was pretty. And there was a Bible in the pew, which as you know, as a Catholic, that's unusual, right? There's a Bible in the pew. Yep. And so I picked it up and started reading it. And the Holy Spirit just grabbed me and said, read this. And I just read from page one. I read all the way through it. Every time I tell the story, it gets shorter, but somewhere around um, four, three months, four months, I finished the whole thing. But in the Old Testament, 
is when I went, went to my knees because I grew up believing that Jesus was the Son of God and he died on the cross, but I never made him the Lord of my life. I was in a call room in the hospital in the middle of the night reading somewhere in the Old Testament, and God's just wiping people out, and that's when it, I realized God's serious about sin. And holy moly, I've been using whatever gifts or talents he's given me for my own pleasures, and uh, that dropped me to my knees, and that changed my life. So I didn't go through the shedding of the dirty water that much, but uh, but it did. I changed. You know what you listen to, and the music changed. You know different things, and then I read mere Christianity. So I read it after I, yeah, and I read it because I started reading uh, um, Chuck Colson, and I read the first two books by Chuck Colson, and he mentioned mere Christianity a bunch of times, and I read it. So anyway, yep, that's an awesome story. So man. mere Christian, mere Christianity is probably the. I don't know, the root of so many men's lives in the Anglosphere, right? Yeah. I guess the Protestant Anglosphere. Although he was an Anglican, so he was, you know, kind of a, an Episcopalian, uh, you know, British version of Episcopalian. But, yeah, it's funny how so so many men, Protestant men in America, and Catholics too, which is, you know, interesting to me, uh, look, look to C.S. Lewis, who was... Uh, not a not a pastor of any kind. I mean, he's a, just an author. Right. And uh, how much of what he wrote is so influential over men. But, you know, I, I always say to a guy, and he's like, what should I read? I'm like, read Mere Christianity and then read the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Acts of the Apostles. Start start there. That's usually what I tell a guy. And then come back and, and you know, we can talk. Uh, but if you, you got to start there, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a great story. Um, I'd like to uh, rewind a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in the military? Um, I'm always fascinated by that because I never, I didn't really do much. I went through. I was in the Army National Guard, Pennsylvania Army National Guard, back in '85. But I only was only there for two years, and uh, so I went through boot camp. That was about my extent of real Army experience. So, where did you go to boot camp? Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So were you a were you a, a artilleryman? Yeah, the 109th Field Artillery was the National Guard unit I was with, and uh, I was supposed to be a forward so observer. Thir- Thirteen Fox, something yeah, like that. yep. Thirteen Fox Trot, yep. Yeah, yep. I never actually got to do that, but you know, I was that right. was that was right. my MO or whatever it's called. MOS. MOS, yeah. Right, right. You were a cannon cocker, something like that. When I looked yep, it up, you know, you call it. so when I, I, uh, when I went to the recruiter, I did it so I could get money for college and I go in there and, and you know, you got to take this test, whatever it's called, the armed services, blah, blah, blah test. And, yep. and I, and I fab or something. Yeah. yeah. So I took it and I go back to the recruiter. He's like, I've never seen anybody score so high. This, I'm thinking to myself, that was like, <laughs> I could have taken that test in ninth grade. And he's like, you're going to be 13 Foxtrot. Cause you know, you need to learn how to read a compass and you're smart enough. And so I thought, okay, great. And somehow sure. I went home and I don't know how I looked it up because we didn't have the internet, but somehow I looked it up and saw it has like the shortest life expectancy in war. For well, a, yeah, of course. <laughs> but of I course. never, I never had so to do 13, that. 13, 13 foxes are generally travel with the infantry. I was an infantryman uh, for the first part of my career. So uh, I would have, I would have had a guy, 13 fox perhaps attached to me uh, to help me call in fire. So, uh, if you are um, maneuvering or whatever you want to call in indirect fire from the field artillery, there's a methodology to do that. And uh, I was trained to do it, but it would be better to have a 13 Fox with me. I could do it if I didn't have one. Uh, 
Yeah. But you would call back to the artillery and say, fire mission. Right. This is me over fire mission. Troops in the open. Describe them. Whatever. Calling a certain fuse, calling a certain uh, type of artillery and give them a location. And then it was shoot, shoot. And then based on where that first round landed, adjust fire. you would then adjust fire. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. It's same. So, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. So I was an infantryman and the infantryman is, uh, the guy who carries the, uh, rifle is a basic, you know, uh, soldier. I was trained at Fort Benning, uh, to be that. And, uh, I was a infantry platoon leader and a, uh, company executive officer, a battalion, uh, motor officer in infantry battalion in Germany. And then I changed my MOS though for officers. It's not called MOS, but I changed from 11 Bravo, which is infantryman to a special forces officer, which is called 18 alpha, uh, which is different. So, uh, I had two MOSs, so to speak. So the last half of my career, I was in nine years, last half of my career, I was a special forces officer. So, the mission of the infantry is to close with and destroy the enemy. The mission of the special forces is to free the oppressed. Oh, I didn't and know that. Yep. Generally stated in Latin, depresso liber, or uh, hashtag DOL. So special forces men will greet each other with DOL. And what we're essentially saying is free the oppressed. That's what, that's what our job was. Mm-hmm. So what, what made you go into, how did you decide to go into the military to begin with? My sophomore year of college, my father called me and said, I've lost the gas station. I can't pay for your sophomore year of college. Uh, You're going to have to find another way. Yeah. And uh, I looked down at the table in my apartment. There was a card from the ROTC department to my roommate that said, essentially, if you got a pulse uh, and you need money, come see us. Reagan was building up the military. Uh, I went in and walked in the door and said, this wasn't sent to me, but dude grabbed my arm and said, Hey, do you work out? You look, you know, Hey, he pulled me into his office. I said, this was, he threw the card away. Six weeks later, I was at Fort Knox going to basic training. <laughs> so I needed money. That's how I got in the army. Yeah. Yeah. But you stayed for a while. Turned out accidentally that I loved it. So I just did it. I owed four years. I got a scholarship. I owed four years. And I stayed nine. So, mm-hmm. uh, ac- you know, without any uh, expectation of it, I found that the military life was something I loved. And my family had no background in it. I, I was a Yankee. I'd never touched a rifle or a I knew nothing about it. Right. Uh, I came in right at, you know, when I got in the Army, it was when it was just recovering kind of from the post-Vietnamese, most Vietnam malaise. Right. Really bad time. Nobody joined the army in 1983 like I did. Uh, but, uh, I'm really glad I did it cause it changed my life. Yeah. Did you have any combat experience? So I was in operation desert storm. Was, yeah, desert uh, storm is- so I am a combat infantryman. Uh, I have a combat infantryman badge and I can say I'm a combat veteran. I'm a member of the veteran of foreign wars. And I can say all that. And there ain't no easier war to have been in to have that ex- right. experience. To be able to say that. All right. Why'd you get out? Uh, you know, I believe it or not, I was 30 years old. And I thought, if I'm going to be a lawyer, because I always thought I was going to be a lawyer, I have to get out now because 40, I'll be too old. Oh, yeah. You know, now I'm, 50, now I'm 58. I realize how stupid that was. But, uh, you know, I was about halfway through. And I'm like, eh, 
I'm not going to stay in for 20. So uh, I was at Fort Leavenworth going through a school and Desert Storm was over and they were Clinton and was contracting the military. The Pentagon, my branch guy called me up and said, you know, we pay a bunch of money to get out if you don't do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I just did it. I made that decision in about two minutes Man. in 1993. All right. How, I went to law school. So um, why'd you want to be a lawyer? Just like to argue? Uh, everybody always told me I should. Yeah. And as it turns out, they were right. Because by I am a, by nature, zealous advocate, argumentative, debating person. I mean, that's who I am. And uh, that's why I'm not a judge. I'm a litigator. I was a half-ass soldier. I was pretty good. Pretty good leader. Not great. Uh as far as leadership goes, I give myself a seven. As far as an army leader goes, I was okay, but I'm a really good lawyer. Uh, that's really what I was born to be. So, do you have a do you have a, a a a deeper hate for injustice than most guys? You think? I have. Yeah i i I can't stand it. Yeah, and uh, I'm driven by it. So. Uh, I, I, I cannot stand to see, um, a, a on one level injustice B men standing around watching it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of, so if you, I, I can relate. You to see that, me angry. Yeah. You see me angry. That's where I'm getting angry. Right. When I see a injustice and B men standing around, like you guys know, you've probably seen them cause you're, you're Keystone guys. When I look at those scenes of Philadelphia <laughs> and people on the streets laying around all stoked out on fentanyl or whatever, fentanyl, fentanyl, whatever. Fentanyl. And, and I, I say, where the hell are all the Villanova, Villanova grads and all these guys, men, what are they doing exactly? Letting this happen in the city of brotherly love. Yeah. Where the where the Declaration of Independence was written and signed, and they've got men on the street, outside, laying around, killing themselves with drugs. What the hell are they doing? Yeah, it makes me angry. Yeah, I don't mean you guys. You guys are Central Pennsylvania guys, uh, but the Philadelphia men. What the hell is up with that? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a, obviously a big problem in all the cities. Um, so. Not in Charlotte. Yeah. We well, don't have, you walk down Main Street in Charlotte, there ain't, there ain't guys lying around stoked out on Fenadel, Fenadryl, whatever the hell. Yeah. We don't have that. <laughs> One of those ills. <laughs> I mean, we don't have that. I, I mean, I'm not just telling you. Well, well let me we ask you. That. So why do you think that is? I think because something really wrong has gone really wrong in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I think it starts with the men. Well, it starts I, with leadership. I, for whatever right? reason. Yeah, I think it starts with leadership. It's always, doesn't it yeah. boil down to that? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so somebody needs well, to lead. I'm a hammer. The world looks like a nail. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I sure as hell do. Yeah, so I think, you know, it's the, the culture, the worldview shapes policy and whatever, you know, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, so you became a lawyer and you're good at it, so you found that. Um, that's all I'm good at, by the way. <laughs> No, that's not true. I mean, no, that's not true. And I, I want to, and I say that because one of the things that has impressed me about you is 
uh, your ability to, and I guess this, and I, and I, and I, my question for you is, I have a question to follow this, but what, one of the things that impressed me about your ability to be concise in defining things and explaining things. So like when I read QSource, for instance, uh, I've read a lot of books on leadership. QSource is, I think, the best book I've read on leadership. And it's and one of the reasons is because you well, take these... Honored. Yeah, and why, I think you, you, know, you take these concepts of leadership and stuff and you boil them down into a way that's understandable in a concise way. And I, I think that's a gift. Um, but my question to you is, have you always been good at that or is that also a practice thing? I think both. I mean, I think... Um, I've always been, I have a really good memory for what I've been taught. Like I can remember it and I'm good at repackaging and making it simple. So like I'll yes. hear something, you know, that I've been taught like in college or wherever. And I'm good at like taking it and re kind of jiggering it and maybe create an image in men's mind that they can remember, you know, and that's kind of a lawyer skill. So like if I'm arguing to a jury like you take something very complicated and I'm like good at taking it and saying to the jury, this is why when you go back in the, in the deliberation room, this is what you need to remember. Yeah. Right. So for example, say a complicated case over the construction of a house and there's, you know, there's the owner of the house is saying, well, it's all screwed up, whatever. And I represent the general contractor and I'll tell them why the law says what it says. But I'll say, you need to remember that this house was built with human hands and I'll hold my hands up human hands. In other words, people make mistakes. So I think I've always been good at that. You know, like taking that, taking something that I experienced and reducing it to a, like a, a parable, you know, yeah. cause that's what Jesus did. Right. Yep. yep. So Jesus would take this really complicated idea. Like why, you know, how do we understand what a man is supposed to do with the gifts that God gives him, right? That's kind of a complicated ideal, right? Yeah. And then he turns around and tells this story about a rich man who leaves and he gives coins to people he leaves behind his servants. And he says, you know, take these and do something with them. And, and one guy just buries it and another guy invests it, right? Yeah. And then he comes back and a rich guy comes back and says, what'd you do? And uh, one guy says, I took what you gave me and the five coins you gave me, now it's 25. Blessed are that. And then you get to the last guy. He's like, I buried them. I didn't use them because mm -hmm. I was afraid of you because I thought you were capricious and I was afraid of you. And he says, you know, from those to, to much has been given, much will be given more. But you, my friend, are going to be thrown out and are going to gnash, right? Right, yep. See, that's a great way to look at it, right? It's a, such a simple way to look at what we've been given. You've been given a particular talent, a skill. So, like, uh, Defib, you have a, a skill for healing, or you wouldn't be doing what you're doing, right? You have a way of walking in a room and see somebody's in pain who needs to be cared for, right? Who needs care. And you can understand and help them and give them something palliative in some way to make them better. Mm -hmm. That's a gift, right? And you've taken that and, and, and done something for the kingdom for that. Mm -hmm. And that's your gift. You know, my gift is be able to take an idiotic thing that happened in my life and laugh at it and create a story about it so other men can be edified and learn and hope to be better, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, hope. I hope. You well, you definitely have that gift because that's one of the reasons why, the, uh, at least in particular, the Q source is compelling for me. Um, 
A lot Thank of things that, that yeah, I'm honored. yeah, a lot of things you've uh, done is has been compelling for me because uh, you know the mission of F three speaks to my heart because before F three existed, before I even knew about it, I was uh, interested in and trying to learn about and get some experience with leadership. And one of the problems I saw in the world, like my ultimate problem or whatever, was to try to get men to be better leaders. We're, we're lacking um, male leadership in our country. And Mine too, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I read your book. I'm like, yeah, man, that dude, that's me. So I, that's why F3 was so compelling for me. In fact, I, the book Freed to Lead, I read that. So my wife and I moved down to Florida. We were only down there for a year. We, we, I, my wife clued me into F3. It was F3 Lakewood Ranch. Bing planted a shovel flag in a place called Lakewood Ranch where I lived. Oh, yeah. Before, I've been there. Yeah, before it became a region. And uh, so I started yeah. going there, got my name, whatever. But within a year, and I was only involved there for about eight months because – Took me a few months to find it, and then we moved back to the same place in Pennsylvania. But F three didn't exist here. But I had started a men's um, ministry, a men's group in I think it was 2011 that met on Saturday mornings, and they were still meeting. I led it till I left, and I came back, and I said so I got involved with that again. But my pastor said, "Hey, I'd like you to ramp up the men's ministry." So I started another men's group on Tuesday nights, and I'm thinking to myself, "Man, I'm, I found I'm missing F three." Holy cow, there's a book. Somebody wrote a book about it. All right, Free to Lead. I'll read that. Well, I start using Free to Lead in the Tuesday night sessions where I, you know, we a couple of us took turns teaching. Dial up was there. And we would, uh, you know, I started using things from Free to Lead in my men's ministry uh, group. Um, and because it spoke to my heart as a man. But, uh, but that whole thing about finding purpose and being missional. Uh, really spoke to my heart and and male leadership, and I thought, well, we got to have this here. So, it doesn't exist around. The closest one is an hour and a half or more away. I better I better figure out how to start it myself. So that's how we we got it. But I, I give you that story because um, because that mission of invigorating male community community leadership is part of I think my D two X. So I, I I can relate to what you know what you talk about in these books. Uh, I don't know about more than other guys, but I, I can really relate to it, and, I, and it speaks to my heart. So thank you for that. Well, it sounds like that's the thing for you. Like, I can't go into a Starbucks and watch, I mean, I watch some dude who's supposed to be in charge flounder around without wanting to help him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just, it, and I, I know I spoke sharply about Philadelphia. I want to help him. I mean, I get it. They don't have any leadership. There's no men. Right. I want to help them. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not castigating them. I'm calling out what I see as a huge gap into between what it is that city is and what God intended it to be. Just calling out that gap without saying, without saying it, anybody's at fault or whatever and saying there's gotta be a remnant, right? Mm-hmm. Of men, of men who are there and find it intolerable that on the streets of their city, Men are are imprisoned by drug addiction and have debased themselves in that way. There's got to be right, just by logic. Yeah. There's got to be, and if if there's some way we could inspire and influence that remnant of men to say, no, I'm just not willing to stand there and watch it. I'm I. I'm gonna do something. You know, there is an F three region. Try. In Philly. I was just gonna say, men of F three Philly, are you hearing this? Yeah, there's a there's yeah. an F three region in Philly. We can, <laughs> I'll bet there is. There is, yeah. right? Gauntlet's thrown down there, boys. You better be listening well, to this. I'm sure podcast. they would agree with. I'm sure they would agree with what I just said. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's opportunity there. Yes. Yeah. 
So I, I got another question for you. Uh, do you consider yourself pedantic? And that's the reason I asked yeah. this. Yeah. I'm a big pain in the ass, man. <laughs> you just listen to me for 30 minutes. Well, a pedant, a pedant, though, is someone who forces his ideas down people's throats, in my mind, uh, with without due respect for what they might say. Right? Like, well, he's just a pontificator, yeah. you know. So I don't really think I'm pedantic. I think I have strong ideas that are loosely held. Yeah, I think, so the reason I asked that is because I think I'm pedantic, but I, I didn't have that definition, and maybe I'm wrong, but my definition was more, uh, I'm very literal. Like, I'm, you know, when I listen to people talk, I, I, take, I take what they say literally, which causes me problems sometimes, because they tell me something, I'm taking what they say literally, and especially conversations with my wife, although we've learned to live with it. Um, you know, I take what she say literal. Like the other day she said, it's in that box over there. Well, she meant the bag, and I'm looking for a box. There's no box. She meant sure. the bag, you know. So uh, anyway, that was my. Well, my... you're just being you're just being a man there. I mean, yeah. my my wife and I got through that all the time. I'm like, where'd called... you say it was? I'm like, you know, I'm looking where it should be. It's called right? it's called man Not looking. Where it could be man looking. Yeah, well, exactly. I, but I I, I do take things very literal, and I try to use appropriate words, and it drives me crazy when people use words. And they don't mean, and they're using the word wrongly, or they have changed the definition of the darn word, or whatever. And that drives me crazy. Uh-oh. So, uh oh. So. Well, I don't think that's. I don't think that is being a, pe a pedant, actually. But I see why some people might say that, and it would be the kind of person that wants to change the definitions of words because they don't like living with what they mean. <laughs> right. So. To me, that's good. That's a completely different thing. Um, to me, that's, that's not the same thing whatsoever. I'm exactly the same way you are there. Yeah. So maybe I'm not really pedantic. I could come up with a different word, but I got accused of well, being pedantic. Someone, ha so, someone has to defend the language, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll try and come up with something for you. We'll put a question out there to the packs. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I told. I said well, you're, you're kind of saying you're kind of saying you're a literalist, I guess. Uh, yeah, but or, not, not not for you know, any uh, bad reason. You know, I just well, just the way you are. Yeah, here's an example for you. I'm getting well, I'm getting way off topic now, but here's an example for you. All right, so I'll give you a story. So we were down to Washington D.C. I don't know how long ago this was. I think my my youngest was still in college. My uh, my daughter was out of college or something like that, but we were, we're down with family and uh, we're leaving this place to go back to the hotel and got to get an Uber. So we call an Uber. So this, this lady pulls up, picks us up. I sit in the front seat. My kids and my wife sit in the back seat and the lady is a, um, she's a black lady and she's from Africa. I forget what country in Africa and she's going to Georgetown for her master's degree. And she has a name that's not at a usual, it's not like Mary or Sue. It's some other, it's like an African name, first name. And I said, Oh, what does that mean? And you would have thought I did one of the worst things that you could ever do the way my kids reacted, not in the car, but they were like aghast that I asked her what her name meant. And we got out of the car. She said, that's racist. That is no, not racist. What are you talking about? It's like but cultural, that's, right? And well, I work at a hospital where, we have, where I have a lot of people from other countries. And I always ask, and, and that her name meant something that's, yeah. you know, my, my parents called me Nevin. They had no idea what that meant. And that we are, I didn't have a meaning for yeah. my name. I mean, there is a meaning if you look it up, but. Born with the cows anyway. under a full moon, right? So, <laughs> like, like, no, not you. No. But like, that's what names have origins like that. Right. Right. In yeah. Africa. And that's, yeah. and that's all you were getting Like at. sunrise or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, 
Yeah, I'm off on a little tangent there, but that drives me crazy. Well, actually, most names have a meaning. So Emmanuel means God with us, right? Yep. I mean, mo- actually, most names do have a meaning because they were conjured up at a time where the person was born and it meant something. Yeah. So to ask what a word, what somebody's name means actually is complimentary because what That's you're trying what to thought. seek is more information about them. All right. And my- I, I don't, you know, yeah. Africa's a big place and to draw general statements about the entire continent, it can't really be done. But I think, to a great extent, their mean, their names often mean something. Yeah, yeah, and it did. It did. But mine was conjured up because my mom thought that Troy Donahue was some hunk of hunk of burning love, I guess. Yeah, apparently so he was. It's true, he was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're, well, you're Jackie Legs now. His wife has changed his every <laughs> name to Jackie Legs. Yeah, that's if just you, a little If side you name. ever listened to any of our podcasts, we had a podcast we were a panel of our wives on talking about it. And anyway. That was risky. Yeah, that was. We it took worked out. It did. It did. All right. So um, let me ask you. I didn't even. I, we haven't even talked about F three, but um, <laughs> but this is all good. I, I'm just curious though, uh, just to talk, get a little bit more uh, in depth about you. I, I I started asking this question at the last episode. Last episode we recorded, and I haven't asked these before that. But um, if you were to pick your proudest achievement in life, what would that be? Huh. Wow. I'm not proud of anything I've ever done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a healthy pride. pride. There's is a healthy it, pride. Is he saying that because his wife a, just walked think, through the room? I think pride is a sin. Well, yeah, I think there's a healthy pride where you could take pride in your work, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe. So my wife just said, you should be proud of me. She, you know, she's over with both and She said, you should be proud of marrying me. I'm honored to have married her. Okay. All right. But, I, but, to, be pr- but to be proud is to say that I did something. Yeah. And, and it also implies that someone else did something less. So, uh, you know, sticking with the Q source, what's the thing I feel like has brought me the most honor has been my marriage. Okay. Second would be my children. Maybe I should rephrase that question in the future. Yeah. What's, what's brought you? No, the most well, honor? don't That's do it because one. I said it, but you know, talk about being pedantic. I just like, <laughs> I'm on this kick now where, you know, about pride. I'm like, I completely reject the word. Yeah. You know, I think you could be, I even rejected, even though I love the song saying I'm proud to be American. How did I wasn't, I didn't do it. Right. I was born there. Right. I mean, I'm honored. I'm honored to be American. I'm blessed to be an American, but to say I'm proud to be an American is to like, look down on some Canadian. It's not his fault. He was born in Canada. It's, just, <laughs> it's horrible. I mean, I'd rather be dead, but it just happened to it's him. Worse than being a Yankee. Why should I be? <laughs> Ten times worse. Being a Yankee is a horrible thing. Being a Canadian is is fourteen steps below it. Our Blue Ridge relay team has to be the damn Yankees. The damn now. Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta, yeah. We gotta yeah. Jesus. Well, you guys aren't Yankees. You're from Pennsylvania. Well, yeah, we're above the Mason Dixon line, but uh, yeah, I guess it depends. That on makes you Midwesterners. You know, you ain't Yankees. I think the Midwesterners might be offended by that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, you're in Big Ten country, man. Yeah, that's right. Or so is UCLA and USC, apparently. Yeah. All right. So, um, so another question I have: uh, We have, you know, the, as Christians, we're encouraged to have someone we're mentoring, have somebody that you know we're walking alongside of, going through the same things. But we're also encouraged to have a mentor. 
Uh, do you have a mentor? Oh yeah, I sure do. That must be that must be hard to find uh, when when we get up to the ages that we're in. That must that must be difficult because I'm having a challenge. I have a mentor, but you know, t- to go by your definition of being a mentor, the whetstone approach, you have to have proximity. So the the guy that uh, the couple guys that were mentors in my life don't live near me anymore. So that's a challenge for me finding a mentor. Yeah, the older you get, the harder it is too, yeah. right? Yeah. Because uh, it's not completely necessary, but really, uh, I think it's hard to have a stone who's younger than you. So, yeah, uh, mine is you know twenty years older than me, and I'm blessed to have them. Uh, but I I think it's it's absolutely necessary to have one. Yeah. So yeah. All right, pray for me. I'm looking for. I will approximate mentor. Um, you guys are too young. You can't be my mentor. Sorry. That's all right. Um, all right. As far back to F three, uh, it's interesting. I, you know, we got we had slaughter on just right before you. His episode will air right before yours, I guess. But uh, finding out what it was interesting to find out the the amount of work that goes on at the I guess central level, for lack of a better word, the structure that exists and yeah. stuff like that. I think ninety percent of the guys in F three have no clue what's happening there. Um, there's a lot, and there's a lot of work going on there. Um, and I and I mentioned to him. Uh, that it must be a challenge. You must be constantly vigilant to maintain the starfish sort of model because as this thing grows and you get new leaders, right? And and it doesn't take long for, for things to change. And you know how power is uh, and, and avoiding the power to be more centrally located. I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, how hard is that? That seems, seems like a challenge to me. I'm going to say it's our biggest challenge and one of the primary reasons why, um, you know, it wasn't my decision, but it was my choice that Slaughter be the Nantan. Um, because we needed a guy that had enough talent, leadership, ability, and commitment to be able to do that. Um, and he, he, in my opinion, has far exceeded anything I expected him to do, and I had high expectations. So... Uh, you know, if you if you're a Q source guy, you realize or you know that we talk about organizations being a lizard, right? Very effective, accomplishing their mission, transitioning into a bullfrog, and concentrating on existential continuity, and ended up, you know, as a leech, just living off the of other organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're dying, and that's kind of the pattern of of what happens to organizations. They start out as very missional. Um, they don't have huge bureaucracies. You know, they're spending their money on accomplishing their mission. Their leaders are, are servants and, and mission-oriented themselves. Maintaining that is tremendously difficult. And because there will always be this temptation to, oh, well, we've done this, we could do that, you know, and money starts coming in and, how, you know, and, and mission creep. Martin, you know, my wife just threw that on my shoulder. She's right, mission creep. Right. Getting outside your mission. Which is why, from the start, we've been very clear that we don't change the mission, right? Right. We have core principles and a mission and a credo, and we stick to that. And I, I think Slaughter has been excellent at that. And so we've grown without giving up who we are. That sounds kind of millennially, but I think it's the right way. We have not abandoned our missionality 
to become bigger and more powerful. We've accepted that there's opportunities we're not going to take because they would cause us to abandon our mission or to, to have mission creep. We've, we've accepted that. And my job as the emeritus is kind of just kind of overwatch that. And every once in a while I'll say, ah, you know, just kind of jump in and say, no, uh, uh-uh. you know, that's not, and it's difficult because, you know, there really isn't another organization that I know of in a world that does what we do. Right. In the way we do it. It's pretty unique. So it would be pretty easy for us to succumb to the siren song of, of success outside our mission lane and then lose who we are. Um, and it's going to take a lot of leadership for, for that not to happen. I think we have the right guys in place, uh, and I pray about it all the time. And I hope it. I hope it's true. Yeah, he uh, he made a comment. He came to the Keystone Convergence and uh, was our our speaker, our keynote speaker. I guess keynote implies yeah, other I speakers. We didn't have other speakers. He was the only speaker. But anyway, um, right. one of the comments he made was, "I believe F three can save the world." So he we had him elaborate on that uh, recently. But uh, but I, I kind of really like that. I mean, that's, that's reaching for the stars kind of stuff, but why not? And, uh, but I think that F3 is which one of the things, other things that drew me to F3 is its missionality and it's, uh, uh, focusing the, uh, the decision-making, the power on the, on the regions. And so it becomes, I don't know if this is exactly the right way to say it, but a grassroots type movement that could change the culture and yep. and being missional and, and with the mission stated as invigorating male community leadership I mean that's what really drew me to F3. I mean the fitness is great. You know, I mean I haven't been able to have a camaraderie like this in a in a and doing physically hard stuff since I, you know, stopped playing organized sports and had been on teams and stuff like that. But the other right. part is obviously the 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 big stuff and uh, so anyway, um I guess I'm preaching now. I shouldn't do that. I was just going to say we can save the world and we're going to start no. with Philadelphia. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it could be done. Yeah. Right. Could be done. Um I, I don't have any any I mean I've seen it. I, I've seen I've seen it um I've seen it happen. Yeah. I've seen guys um who've been addicted to drugs get unaddicted to drugs. You know, we bring up Philadelphia, but for instance, um be a part of a, a re- rehabilitation program um, and get cleaned up. But what they would say to me is that F three didn't clean them up, or F three didn't get a, didn't get them unaddicted. F three returned to them their manhood, right? Yeah. Which is a wholly different thing. Which is why you know if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see me pushing back and fighting against the feminization of men right. and the demonization of masculinity. And I try to do that in a winsome way uh, because I know that there's some people that are deluded about that and they get confused between the difference of leaving no man behind and leaving no man where, where we found him. And they'll focus on the first or second core principle actually and say, well, we're open to all men. I'm like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we accept the way they're living any man that appears at a workout, as far as I'm concerned, is welcome there. But any man who thinks that he is going to be able to continue there unchanged is deluding himself. Because if he's living a life that's unhealthy for him, 
I think he's going to find that other men there are going to suggest to them that that's not good for him or anyone around him. Right. And this idea that we're going to embrace every lifestyle and say, well, because you feel so feel so strongly about something that there's not going to be other men there to say, that's not good for you, brother. You're in the wrong place, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not what we do. Right. Because it's much as I think, and I think this is very much a C.S. Lewis thing, so much C.S. Lewis is, there's so much C.S. Lewis and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, in F3 is so, it's so, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the idea that um, we as Christian, Christ, a Christian is going to allow the world to change him is the exact opposite. The fact that you begin following Christ means is you're bound and determined to change the world. Yes. Right? It's the exact opposite. We don't conform to the world. The world is going to be changed by us. Maybe not like it, right? But that's the way it's going to be. F3 is not going to conform to the world, right? We're here to disrupt it. The path that the world is on, the path that men are on in America is the wrong path. The direction that it's going, masculinity in America, the downward path, the sad clownism and the surrender to cultural gooism, that's wrong. We stand for something completely different. And we just have to keep saying that and keep resisting the temptation. You know, do you realize how much, you know, I'll hear the guys say this. Do you realize how much we could, uh, how many donations we could get from Bank of America, you know, or whatever? If we would simply, yeah, you know, you name it, like sacrifice or compromise something we say we believe in, well, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. Yeah. yeah, and that takes right? that takes constant vigilance, just like you know all this other stuff. Constant, got to be on it. Constant reminders. Yeah, constant, constant reminders, constant vigilance, constant reinforcement of the mission formula. This is what we do. This is why we do it. This is what our, our, our core values are, uh, and this is what we're about. And if, if, you, if you make an offer to us that's lucrative, but it requires us to abandon something we believe in, well, respectfully, we say no. But not only that, you should rethink that offer. Mm-hmm. The strings that you attach to it, you should you rethink why you did that. And I, it's taking time, but I, I think we're winning. Maybe I'm... Blowing sunshine up my own six there, but I, I do think we're winning. Well, I think you are because, um, you know, we've only been doing this for, I don't know, what episode is this? 18, 19, something like that. But the guys that we've had on uh, had their uh, lives impacted in a great way, you know, by F3, but, but they've also impacted F3 in a great way. And I was thinking about this yesterday, and, you know, I think that, just like you said, uh, F3 didn't help them didn't help them overcome their addiction, help them re- regain their man, manhood. Yeah. I'm thinking about, I was thinking about this yesterday in a similar vein. These guys that we have on are high impact men. A lot of these guys would be high impact men anyway, but they're high impact, high impact men plus F3. Uh, F3 has helped them become high impact men, maybe give them an avenue, a venue. Um, but, and, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm articulating this as well as I should, but uh, F3 is extremely important. Guys can get, this kind of thing elsewhere, maybe, uh, but I haven't found it. Uh, and I'm, I'm 
going to expand on that a little bit. So doing men's ministry for as long as I have in men's groups, hey, you get together, you study something, maybe we study mere Christianity or something like that, and we pray for each other. Year after year after year, the same guys have the same struggles, the same struggles, the same problems. And, you know, we pray for them, we're there for them. You could call us in the middle of the night, that kind of stuff. But I haven't seen a vehicle help guys get through that stuff as well as F3 does. Yeah. So when we started doing F3, and guys come to that, and guys, guys seem it seems to be just a vehicle that helps them more than sitting down talking about it. It's an accelerant. It's an accelerant. Yeah. That's good. So, uh, I think in some cases, though, it, it truly is unleashing the the modern the day man, warrior, the man inside of them. <laughs> no, I think no, I think some of the stories we've heard, it truly has. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you said some guys, a lot of these guys would be great leaders, regardless of F three or not. But I, I'm. I would disagree with that in some ways. I think I think some men needed F three to to get back to that yeah, yeah. warrior mentality, yep. um, wanting to step out and lead courageously. Absolutely. Um, you know, you guys might know that I'm a tireless and unflinching proponent of America mm-hmm. and the ideas that are set forth and the ideals that are set forth in the Declaration of Independence. So, um. Before the Declaration of Independence, America, what was America was just basically 13 colonies, colonies, with no cohesive philosophy about what it was that we were. So we, you know, we take a lot of Americanism for granted, and sometimes we apologize for it, which I will never do. Um, but we, we, we don't focus in on the fact that you basically had 13 disparate colonies that could not have articulated a vision for what it was they were or even any cohesiveness. So they, they come together in Philadelphia, ironically, mm-hmm. and set forth this set of principles about who we were and why we're different. And it's so revolutionary because up until 1776, no one would ever have said that there wasn't a status hierarchy that there wasn't the highborn and there weren't peasants and that no one would ever have suggested that ever, ever anywhere. There was nowhere in a, in the whole world where anyone would possibly say that it's 13 years before the French revolution. I mean, it's the most revolutionary thing that anyone ever said or uttered other than the tomb was empty. It's, it's insane how, crazy it was and the fact that the representatives of those 13 colonies came together and said yeah all men are created equal and are in, in have certain inalienable rights life liberty and pursuit of happiness that come from god not from governments and by the way king george you violated that and you're done mm-hmm. and we're going to fight you over it yep. that was an insane thing to say I, I <laughs> like it was beyond Right. Yeah. Yeah. I shared with the PACs and, on the Fourth of July that you know I've been to a lot of historic sites and you know all, lots of national parks. Nothing has ever given me the chills like when I took the tour at Independence Hall and had the you know the National Park Ranger there just kind of walk through all right. the events right. and the and and the the imagery that he was able to portray with his words. I mean, like just goosebumps running down my, my back of what those men did Mm -hmm. 
and what happened on that site. It's just, yeah, just the, 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 the bravery of it yeah. and the clarity of vision. And again, oddly enough, being Keystone guys, go down, I'm sure you guys have done this, go down to Gettysburg to the battle to the battlefield and stand in the place where 52,000 men died in three days. Yeah. More than Vietnam, the entire war. It's amazing. To fight over whether or not those principles and those promises of freedom would be extended to all. Right. Yep. 52,000 men. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I stood at Gettysburg and, and stood there and thought about that and looked across, uh, you know, where Pickett's charge was, and, and, and thought about that and thought that if Pickett had over, got gotten over that wall, yeah. that right there, it would have died. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that the, the, the effort that's gone into it. So the reason why I brought that up is obviously in 1776, there were people in these 13 colonies who thought these things. Mm-hmm somehow through leadership, they were brought together to put them in one document and sign it and say, this is what we believe a proclamation of belief. Imagine what King George thought when he read that. <laughs> I mean, you imagine that? Yeah. He's like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it's unimaginable really. Yeah, yeah. And what those guys did was treason and they knew it. And they, they, that's why they have in there that yeah. we dedicate our lives or fortunes, our sacred honors or whatever. And if you read about what happened to the signers of the declaration, almost all of them lost everything. Some of them were killed of course. in prison, their families imprisoned, their properties burned. They signed their own death warrants. They, they signed their own death warrants. Yeah. You know, so um, I'm impatient and intolerant of the criticisms of America, not the criticisms of the government. Hell, I'm sue the government all the time. <laughs> government is sta- the, the government is populated by human beings with human hands who make mistakes all the time. Yeah. But the principles of America, uh, I'm intolerant of criticism of those and won't stand by uh, silently or even the, de- I will debate them, but in a, in a mildly angry way, much in the way that Jesus cleared the temple. Yeah. Like I, you know, I, I, I do not tolerate that because it is by those principles that those men stood by were reinforced four score and seven years ago, seven years later at Gettysburg in blood. It is those things that allow LeBron James to say, well, you know, don't come back to America. Mm-hmm. The, the freedoms to say stupid things were, were earned by that way through that. And I'm intolerant of it. So when I wrote Free to Lead, what I was trying to get across was you should you you are in the inheritors of that. And as men, there's a sacred obligation that you pick up that inheritance and you use it for the betterment of the community and the nation. That's what I was trying to get across. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure I did it very well, but that, that was a point I was trying to make, you know, that this is not something that's new. It's something that's become tarnished. And if you feel afraid or you're not sure what to do, 
well, this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah, nice. This is what it is. Yeah, and you 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 write about that in the and talk about that in the minivan Centurion uh, thing. And so I don't know how many people listen to those podcasts and read that, but I read it and listened to them. And uh, and uh, you know, it's again, it speaks to my heart. You know, because I'm I feel the same way about America. So. In fact, I just bought. According American- to Dark Helmet, uh, roughly five hundred men. Right, five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> only growing, only growing. Yeah. So listen, right. I got, I got, I got a few minutes left with you. I, um, I know you, you did free to lead, you did Q Source, you, you, you got minivan centurion running and rolling now. Um, you step back as Nantan Nantan Emeritus. What's next? So uh, I wrote another book, which is almost done. And it's called the zebra jockey, which talks about uh, adaptation to chaos, which comes from my frustration and rage through COVID mm. and COVID lockdown. Um, it's really, I don't even think the word COVID appears in the book, but um, what occurred to me through COVID is um, we've got um we have a complex political spectrum that we think governs us and we have a lot of names for it, but really it breaks down to two things. There's some people that are governed by the idea of control, like directing the actions of others and determining outcomes. And there's other people that are adapters who make necessary movements, necessary changes to stay in motion. And that, that is the, root, the true political spectrum. It isn't left or right. It's not communist and fascist. It's whether or not you think people should be free to make their own decisions, right? Or whether you think they should be told what to do. Yeah. And, and, and COVID really exposed that in our society, who we are. Uh, it, it really did. It really, it really exposed it. So, uh, I'm like one book ahead of Frank of Doa. He's got to get minivan centurion done, but um, <laughs> I'll be, I'll be putting a zebra jockey out uh, probably next week. As a matter of fact. Oh, cool. So I'm glad I asked. Yeah. 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 That seems, yeah. that seems like a, a fine line to, to walk right between uh, government uh, rules and our freedoms, because there's, there's certain things sure. that, you know, you don't want, you're not a libertarian. Not everything should be free, right? You, we shouldn't be handing out fentanyl in the streets and, or whatever. So there's nope. there's some laws that we got to have. So I, the, the real question is, where do you draw the line, right? Yep. That's exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. right? So Lincoln said that, you know, my freedom to swing my fist ends at the point of your chin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is a good way to put it, but discerning where that point of the chin is, is tricky business and takes leadership. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a recovering um COVID rebel, but I think I learned a lot from it. Mm. And I think America learned a lot from it. And the fact that we have 50 states who reacted to it differently. Yeah. Um, has been a perfect example of what I think the Tocqueville called, you know, the, the, uh, what do you call it? The incubation of like 50 tiny little experiments. Right. So, you know, every state handled it differently yeah. in a different way. And we can now see the results. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's like the, the lockdowners and the mandators didn't work. 
and the ones that allowed people to make decisions on their own and be responsible mostly work. You may disagree with me, Defib, because you're a medical professional guy. Uh, but um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I never said that anyone shouldn't get the vaccine. I did not get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent too many years in the army to stick something in my arm without a lot of proof that it would work. Yeah. I never said shouldn't get it. I always said the government shouldn't force you to get it. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I, I'm. Uh, you might be surprised, but I, I'm more on the on on toward lean toward uh, the, your approach to. In fact, I think I probably completely lean that way. Um, it's it's a challenge, right? I mean, it's a challenge because the uh, the initial pandemic when it first started uh, was deadly. I mean, it, it the the mortality rate wasn't that much higher than a really bad flu season, but so many people got infected because it was so communicable that it overwhelmed that a lot more people died, but it overwhelmed the healthcare system. That, that was the major problem. And that's what we started out with flatten the curve. Right. The whole thing about flatten the curve was to right. ease the burden on the healthcare system. It wasn't to eliminate it completely. And then it changed. But the biggest problem I see from this pandemic is something that you've touched on. And that is, I think we've lost more faith in the very institutions that we have to rely on. Yeah. And that's a dangerous thing, right? I think that's a very dangerous thing. Now, they're, they're obviously governors that went way too far. Uh, the people that politicize it are just despicable. And, but the, even the, the, the science, right, the CDC and all these people, when the, first, the first thing they came out at a press conference, the Surgeon General said masks don't work. You don't have to wear them. And then they flipped on that. And then they flipped on this. Now, some of it is because we're learning as we go. <laughs> But a lot of it was just not, you know, just... We, just, did, we didn't have enough masks, right? We have enough masks, yeah. Right. But, so we're just going to tell them it doesn't work. That way everybody doesn't want to have a mask. Yes, but that, <laughs> what that did was it generated incredible distrust yeah. and a cynicism of the very institutions that we rely on. I mean, if we can't rely on the healthcare experts, so to speak, at the CDC or wherever, if we can't rely on our leaders to make, you know, good decisions and stuff, then we're in trouble because people are... How do you do, How do you get that trust back? I, I actually have a lot of faith that we can rebuild it. And I, uh, well, look at Penn state. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, Penn state has rebuilt the trust of the people. I mean, uh, I think Joe Paterno, uh, I'm not, I, I don't know if he's a horrible personality. He did horrible things. He turned it, he turned a blind eye to horrible things. And, uh, there was a time when I thought, well, Penn State is Ohio State. It's bad as Ohio State. Um, but Penn State has kind of recovered. And I think a lot I think a lot of people have said, you know, have 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 realized that it was a it wasn't a matter of the institution being completely corrupted. It was one man who had too much power. Yeah, it was more than and, one man though, unfortunately. It was the president and there were some other people involved, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they would say, well, you know, they talk about the athletic director. I'm like, you think Joe Paterno cared what the athletic director said? Well, it's silly, right? So I, I see a, uh, a corollary between, say, Fauci and Paterno. Just men who have too much power and are unquestioned mm-hmm. and hold, held to no accountability. And that's what you get, right? I mean, that, you know, that's what you get. And, and, I think a lot of people have been victimized by Dr. Fauci's overreach 
and the fact that no one questioned them. And uh, I think it's a good lesson to us all. Like, it was a good lesson after the truth about Joe Paterno came out. Now we found out that he cared a hell of a lot more about winning than he did about the safety and, and, and security of, of little boys in his locker room. And I think Joe, and I think Dr. Fauci cares a lot more about his career and his standing and money than he cares about the health of America. And now we can see it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I hope you're right. And and we can see it, right? Yeah. I hope you're right. And I'm not, I'm not a cynic. I'm a skeptic. Uh I don't think I don't, I'm not cynical about institutions. I'm skeptical. And I, you know, I, all I ever said was ask hard questions. Yeah. That's, that's all I ever said. And if they can't answer them, then keep asking. That's it. Yep. No, that's good. That's the way we should approach things. That's the way we should approach things in a free uh, society. Um, I hope so. Yeah. So another question for you, two more questions for you. One is what's your, what's your uh, weekly routine like is in regard to posting the workouts and that kind of stuff. People are usually interested in that stuff. I'm interested. Yeah. So I go to a boot camp on Monday called big hair Monday usually, which has been around for 10 years. Um, it's not the hardest boot camp in the world, but it's good. Uh, I go to a, what we call a swole workout, basically gear on Tuesdays in a parking garage, which is kettlebells, uh, rucksacks, sandbags, cinder block kind of thing. Wednesday, I go to another boot camp called Prometheus, which is a little more difficult to be here Monday. Thursday, uh, I go to another swole, same place. It's a little easier than Tuesday. Friday, I usually rock. And Saturday, uh, I usually go to boot camp here in Charlotte someplace. Mm-hmm. I move that around a little bit. And uh, Sunday, I take off unless I've missed a day or two, and then I'll run on Sundays. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like you don't do a lot of running. Listen, the boot camps, you hit some No, hit I, some used to, I used to run about 30 miles a week. Right now, I run about 10. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Dial up here. He's our runner. He's, he's a pretty good runner. I'm, we did, we did the Blue Ridge Relay last year. First time that we did that. And that was a l- great experience. I'm not a runner. I'm a guy who runs. So, you know, yeah. I, d- I did my best. How many man team? It was 12. We had 12. 12. Yeah. 12 man team was, uh, is good. That was what we did the first year. First year we did it was 2010. And then I did six mans after that. And I haven't done it in a couple of years. Uh, because I won't do a six man unless I've done 50, I'm doing 50 miles a week and it's been a while since I've done that. Yeah. That's a lot of miles, 50 miles a week. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a good chunk of miles. Yeah. Yeah. Basically you're running, you know, a 12 or in a 10 or plus whatever. Am I, you know, for me Yeah. in a week. Now you say when you ruck on, on Fridays or or whenever it was you ruck, what what do you mean ruck? Do you, uh, how many miles do you do? Or is it like a, a workout with a rucksack? No, just straight rock, four miles, fast as I can, 50 pounds. Okay. Yeah, I got to up my weight. Fifty. You said 50 pounds? 50, yeah. 50. Yeah. A rock 50. We, we got to pick up our game, our yeah. rock game. <laughs> All right, well, thanks. Well, I got I got one more question for you. It's a question I ask everybody at the end. Yeah, man. This is, not that you haven't already, but this is your chance to speak to the men of America because we have so many listeners. Sure. What is your message for the men of America? My message for the men of America is that the, the, that what you're hearing from the culture is not right. That women do not want us to be vulnerable and and uh, 
and um, empathetic. That, that's not what they want. They want us to be consistent, compassionate, and durable. That's, that's, what, our, that's what our women want. Uh, they're not looking for us to be versions of them with more hair on our bodies. You know, they got that. What they want is a man that will love and protect them, will stand by them and their children under all conditions and circumstances, will set aside fear to heart, turn hardship into grace, and will fight to the very end for them. And will do so not only in the family, but for the community so the family can prosper. Mm-hmm. And if they have any confusion about that, they just need to get back to base principles. Love and protect your family. Be an asset in your community. Fight to hold, hold the middle of the nation. That's what men are supposed to do. All right. Well, thank you. Awesome. Dial-up, do you have any other questions? No. No no questions, but uh, just it's uh, been an honor, privilege to have you on. Yeah, yeah man. You know, you... You asked me to talk about my favorite topic. You know you're going to get a lot. Yeah, of course. No, that's what we want. I, I do have one more question. Uh-oh. I forgot to ask this. Uh-oh. I'm curious. I'm curious. I, um, I used to ask this uh, when I, I, again, I just did it the first time last episode, but um, when I directed a, a surgical residency program, when I interviewed people, question is, if you were to pick somebody past or present, somebody who lived a long time ago or whatever, that you look up to or is your hero, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. No I had a feeling because that's your emblem for your Twitter thingy. Yeah. 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 So uh, I'm a country lawyer, much as Lincoln was. Um, I'm a soldier, former soldier, as he was. Uh, I'm a deep believer in the promises of American divine providence. And uh, I'm also a believer in the middle, in that um, we have to... Um, be strong in what we believe, right? Our, 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 our essential values. Um, but we also have to be charitable in the way we deal with people who disagree with us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, it, you know, this is the, um, the code, right. The, in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and all, in all things, charity. Mm-hmm. That was, that's a very Lincolnian, way to do it. And I believe he exemplified those things. Mm. And when America was at its most dire straits, the Lord delivered him to us to lead us through that. And I believe that's what the Lord does. Uh, and I am now a wondering if America is in another place like it was in 1860. And if so, who, who will that Lincoln be? Because I don't look to politicians for leadership, but I know that sometimes politicians are leaders. Lincoln was certainly that. Um, so he, he would be the guy I look up to, uh, who I emulate, um, and uh, in, our, in our country, who I look to for the next one. And whoever that guy is, because I don't, it's funny, you, if you listen to me in podcasts, I don't, I don't, or follow me on social media, I don't criticize politicians. You know, I criticize football coaches, <laughs> you know, and I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, I think college football coaches have far more impact on America than politicians do on our culture. Um, so I don't, 
talk about politics or engage in punditry. Uh, but I know that sometimes it matters. And I, I am looking for who that that next Lincoln is. I, doesn't matter which side of the fence he's on or what party he's from, uh, but who that man is who's going to lead us through our turbulent times right now. I'm, I mean, I'm looking for that guy. So if you guys see him, let me know. All right. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the lookout. <laughs> yep. Got my eyes peeled. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, brother. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, man. Honored. Thank all you, you. All you guys got Thank you for to... what you guys are doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I follow everybody and I see it. And when I see it happening, you know, in central Pennsylvania, I'm like, damn, it can happen anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> true. True that. <laughs> yeah, man. We'll try to make you proud. Keep up the good work. Serious. All right. Serious. Thanks, Thank you. Proud in a good way. Proud in a good way. Proud That's in a right. good way. <laughs> the good proud. Proud in a good way. All right. Yeah, man. I'll see you guys. See ya. Later, Jed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I would like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their story of becoming a high-impact man. More information and resources can be found at highimpactman.com. If you like this podcast, please consider following us on our social media pages or email us at him at highimpactman.com. That is H-I-M at highimpactman.com. The High Impact Man podcast has a new episode every week. And you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast platforms. Have a great week, everyone.